Sunday nights in the new year, I've been doing some thinking about um, how we can most effectively use our time in the services. And so, uh, at least while we're doing this study on Ecclesiastes, I'd like to try something that's probably a little bit closer to what we're doing in the ABF hour as opposed to what we're doing on Sunday morning. So, that what that means is that uh, I may ask for people to read passages or to give input, and so I would encourage all of you, including the kids, to be willing to do that. Uh, that way we can be together involved in studying God's Word. And uh, having sat where you sat, sit currently, I know that Sunday night can be a challenge, so that will probably help us be more alert as well. And so just wanted to give that little background uh, if it seems a little different in our approach. We come to the book of Ecclesiastes, like any book of the Bible, I think it's important for us to think through some of the important background information about the book. Uh, and I was uh, working on uh, having a handout for you. I'll plan to give that to you at least by next Sunday. Uh, I was having trouble getting the formatting to look right on that. So, uh, so I will give you, in verbal form, what I was going to give you in the handout get that to you later, and then we will get to the actual handout that I had ready for you this evening uh, toward the end of our time tonight. One of the important things to think about with a book is who wrote it. And the two main options that are put forth as far as who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes are either Solomon or an unknown Jew. Uh, the reasons for saying that it's an unknown Jew are largely related to the reasons that we see by many scholars for why they come up with creative explanations for authors of various books. Uh, when something seems straightforward, um, it's difficult to make much of a name for yourself with a scholarly paper or a doctorate if you just say, well, what it says there in the first verse, that's what it is, so we'll go with that. It's more complicated than that, but that's really the sense that I get sometimes when I look at some of these creative explanations. They don't have, they have the appearance of a solid basis, but I don't really think that they have good reasons for that. Why do we say it's Solomon? Well, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Who do we know that was wise, that was a son of David, and was a king in Jerusalem? And Solomon, right? So, a couple of verses to sort of back this up. Flip over to 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings 2 says, um, the first part of the chapter is David's exhortation to Solomon. We'll skip that for now. We'll start in verse 10. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. The days that David reigned over Israel were 40 years, seven in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. And Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. So Solomon is clearly the successor of David. Uh, if we turn a little bit further to um, uh, especially verses uh, 23 to 25, then King Solomon... Um, I'm sorry, that's not the right reference. Yeah. All right, I'll, I'll look for that reference a little bit later. Uh, 
So clearly he's the king who follows David. He's a king who's noted for his wealth. So turn over to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. And we see in verses 14 through 29 a description of Solomon's wealth. Someone like to read verses 14 through 17. First Kings 10, 14 to 17. Good. So there's varying estimates of how much this would have been worth, but when you have enough gold that you can make shields out of it, you've got a lot of gold, right? I mean, that's clearly the point. Solomon is amazingly wealthy. We see a further description of his throne. We see the fact that his cups that he was using to drink out of were of gold. Uh, And verse 21 is striking. None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. And let that sink in as well. I mean, silver and gold, but silver is kind of, you know, neither here nor there because gold is so plentiful. And so, obviously, God blessed Solomon with a great deal of wealth. We also see a description of his lifestyle. Uh, Turn back to uh, chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. Someone want to read verses 22 through 28?
So we can see that not only in terms of his wealth as far as gold and silver, but even in terms of the staggering cost of daily providing for his household, uh, the core, the measurement in verse 22, uh, my Bible has a note that that's about 10 bushels, and not having a daily acquaintance with a farming background, it's, it's hard for me to calculate exactly how that is, but if I remember correctly, we would talk in terms of like a bushel of apples might be a, a measurement that we'd use today. And so imagine if you were not using one, but 10, and then multiply that by 30, and that whole huge pile of flour, that's how much is going into baking the bread for a day's feeding of everyone connected with Solomon and his household. And there's a, a discussion about some of the manuscripts about whether he had 4,000 or 40,000 stalls of horses, but either one is just an astonishingly large number of horses and chariots and, and servants and people involved in, in working for the king. Without belaboring that point too much, we also see the emphasis on his wisdom. So someone be willing to read verses 29 through 34. So we see clearly that Solomon has a great deal of wisdom as well. So, he is one who is ruling after David. He is one that has a great deal of wealth, which enables the possibility of the experiences that are described in the book of Ecclesiastes. Your average Israelite wouldn't necessarily have had the leisure to say, I'm just going to take a year off and experience all of these things. I mean, that's true for most of us. We can't just say, I'm going to take a year off and travel around the world and do whatever I want to do for a year. We have work that we have to do, whereas someone who's a king, someone who's provided for by others to a certain extent, would have had the opportunity to explore all these things. And we see here at the end of chapter 4, clearly his wisdom is described in great detail. So that's the author. Why, when was this written? Again, when it was written is tied to who wrote it. If it's an unknown Jew... There's a variety of ideas about when it would have been written and why it was written. If it was, in fact, Solomon, I think the most likely time of writing would be more toward the end of his life after he's looked back on these experiences of his life, reflected on them, and said, here's the things I did right, here's the things I did wrong, here's the truth about God. And so Solomon reigned from about 970 to 931 B.C. Just a review for the kids before Christ, the years counted down, and then after Christ, we count the years up. So, 970 B.C. is almost 3,000 years ago. But that would have been the time of his reign for about 40 years, and he would have been looking back on 
his uh, time as king, both the good and the bad choices that he made. Uh, related to this, uh, good and bad choices, 1 Kings uh, chapter 11 uh, says, regarding his behavior, he had many foreign wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And then it says, the Lord was angry with Solomon in verse 9, because his heart was turned away from the Lord, who had appeared to him twice, and commanded him concerning this, he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but will tear it out of the hand of your son. I will not tear away all the kingdom, but it will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So, it is possible that it was written in the middle part of his reign after he'd had time to experience these things before his wives sort of pulled him away to idolatry or toward the end of his life if there was in fact a moment of repentance looking back over all these things because the end of chapter 11 just goes over all the opposition that God raised up against him. But Solomon is looking back on his life. What's the purpose then of this book? There's many purposes that have been uh, put forth as possibilities. If you pick up the average commentary off the shelf today and say, what is Ecclesiastes about? It's going to essentially say this. Solomon is man trying to puz- or Solomon's writing in Ecclesiastes is basically man trying to puzzle out as best he can the frustrations and the unpredictability of life. It's the best of human wisdom under the sun, so to speak. The problem with that view is clearly it's very pessimistic and it's hard to reconcile that with the fact that Ecclesiastes is actually part of the Bible and to some extent should have a message that fits with the rest of Scripture. And so we will not be looking at that as the purpose of the book. Others might emphasize calls to rejoice. There are several of these in the book. Uh, but these calls to rejoice uh, are not perhaps um, as frequent in the book as you might otherwise expect, if that was in fact the theme. Others take the, uh, the passage that there's a well-known song connected with, there's an appointed time for everything and time for every event under heaven from chapter 3, and they'll say, well, that's the point of it. It's these contrasts between life and death, between beginning and ending, all these sorts of things. And there are contrasts in the book, but that contrast of that sort seems to be largely restricted to chapter 3. Yet another idea is that it's an essay in apologetics, but it seems like a, a difficult sort of apologetics that says, life is terrible and miserable, and then you die, but follow God and it'll kind of be okay. I mean, that, that doesn't seem like a very good apologetic, and certainly that is not either an accurate representation of the book, but that's how it sometimes comes across. People with a philosophical bent see the book as some kind of early form of existentialism, an absurd struggle against an unfeeling world. Again, that seems to be clearly reading stuff back into the text. 
I think the best understanding is to see Ecclesiastes in the context of wisdom literature, to set it alongside books like Psalms and Proverbs and say, here is God's truth looking at the nature of life and prescribing and describing what is going on. Uh, One commentator says this, The teacher tells his readers how to live in the world as it really is, instead of living in a world of false hope. In short, Ecclesiastes urges its readers to recognize they are mortal. They must abandon all illusions of self-importance, face death and life squarely, and accept with fear and trembling their dependence on God. Recognition of personal mortality leads to three conclusions. First, all pretense of pride in yourself must be abandoned. For the ruling elite, this means humble acceptance of the limitations of their political power and their ability to achieve intellectual comprehension of life. Second, life should be enjoyed for what it is, a gift of God. The book counsels that while avoiding the temptation to consider pleasure to the point of being the goal of life, one should not miss the fleeting joys that life affords. This, too, is an act of humility, for it's an admission that one's work is not as important as one might wish and that it has no eternal validity. It is also, ironically, an antidote to the madness of the quest for wealth. Although money is sought for the pleasure it can provide, personal happiness and the enjoyment of life's pleasures are often the price paid for wealth. Third, and most important for us and for the book, one must revere God. To refuse to do so is to deny one's dependency on God. And so it's essentially this. People look at Ecclesiastes as kind of a discouraging book, but in fact it's a message of hope. It's don't put your trust in things that don't last, don't have eternal significance and don't really and and truly fulfill the things that God put inside us of for what us to, we're supposed to live for. Instead, recognize that wisdom is good, food is good, family is good, work is good. All of these things are good, but they're not God. So put all of them under God and enjoy them as for what they are, gifts of a good creator. So who then are the recipients of this book? Solomon intended Ecclesiastes to instruct the people of Israel living a life pleasing to God. It would be characterized by wisdom, and wisdom is revealed in other places to be tied closely to the fear of the Lord and to a God-oriented perspective for living life. Where does this fit in the, the Bible as a whole? As I said, it's part of the wisdom literature. Unlike Psalms that is poetry and Proverbs that is mostly brief and pointed sayings, Ecclesiastes is a mix of various things and doesn't fit neatly into a single category. Part of the book is narrative. For example, these statements about, when I was king, I did this. Part of it is Proverbs, like, here's generally how life works. Part of it is a combination of the two. Here's my experience. Here's how life generally works. Here's my conclusion based on sort of tying all these things together. And that, I think, then flows into the structure of the book as well. Uh, There are not multiple people in the book of Ecclesiastes sort of narrating or giving their perspectives. There's not the preacher and then some other voice. It's one person, but he's looking at it from different angles. I'm the king. I'm describing life in terms of Proverbs. 
I'm giving application based on the proverb, the general statement of truth, and my life experiences. And so some people will try to neatly pin down which of those three is in a given section, and it's helpful to think about, but ultimately we recognize that all three of those things are coming from the same person. What's the theme of the book? Life in a perplexing and fleeting world is ordained by a sovereign God and lived out by finite man who doesn't have knowledge and ultimate control of his direction and destiny. But despite these limitations, he can enjoy life and please God as his creator. One of the keys to understanding um, what it is that is going on in this book is to think about this idea that human life is breath. I take that from verse 2 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You might say, well, it doesn't say breath. It says vanity of vanities. That's where we're going to come to this handout and just look at that briefly. So what I did was all of the occurrences where you see this word that's translated in the NASB as vanity, almost exclusively as vanity, I've basically taken and I've put a bunch of blanks. And so you can see all those references. If I remember right, it's almost uh, 40 uses of the word in about 30 different verses. And you don't necessarily have to fill in the blank other than here are some options of words that we could use to fill in the blank. So let's think about this together. One option of, that we could put to fill in the blank, you could just write this at the top of the page if you want, is vanity. This is the word that the NASB and the ESV use. In a couple of these passages, they also use the word futility. So you could say vanity, futility. Those are the two common words in the NASB and the ESV. Then IV uses this word, meaningless. So that's another option that has been used in translations, meaningless. Others have used a word, enigmatic or enigma, not the machine that the Nazis used for code in World War II, but rather the idea of puzzling or perplexing. And then, I think that the word breath, though not perfect, captures some of the elements that I think stand behind this word. So let's, let's think about this. So, let's take... Um, Let's just read through some of these. Someone want to read the first one? And why don't we start out by using the word meaningless? Someone want to read that one with the word meaningless? Ecclesiastes 1 2. Good. Yeah, that's right. All right, so if we fill it in with meaningless, what sort of tone does that set right at the outset? Pretty, pretty negative tone. And while I think Solomon is in this first chapter seeking to undermine, uh, there's a lot of things where Solomon will set something up in this book, and then he'll sort of kick the legs out from under it. But his point in doing that is to say, this is not the ultimate thing to live for. This is only a, a means or a, 
thing, a part of life, it's not the main point of life. Even so, I think meaningless just really puts a, uh, a negative take on the book right off the, right off the bat. So, um, let's read the next one, Ecclesiastes 1.14, and let's read it with the word futility. So, someone want to read Ecclesiastes 1.14 and read it with the word futility. Go ahead, Ben. Okay, so in this context, at least, that fits relatively well. Um, and even in 2.1, I will test you with pleasure, and it too was futility. That actually fits all right there. Um, but in Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 7, then I looked again at futility under the sun, I'm not sure if that entirely captures the sense of what that's saying in context. And particularly when we come with, uh, to a verse like Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 9. Uh, someone read that with the word futile. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 9. Someone be willing to read that? Sure. Enjoy it. It's futile. Um, to be fair, the translators, the NASB, I think, use the word fleeting there. So we have to ask ourselves, why does it use fleeting? I mean, the NIV, I think, still uses meaningless in that verse. But why would they use the word fleeting? Why would they switch? Because futile doesn't really fit there. So I think we have to ask ourselves, does, does vanity, does futility, do those words entirely capture the idea of what it is that Solomon is saying? Uh, Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 7, For in many dreams and in many words there is blank, rather fear God. So he's setting up some kind of a contrast, but is he setting up a contrast between futility or is he saying that they are fleeting, that they are insubstantial, that they are puzzling? There are certain... Um, uh, Ecclesiastes, what's that? Yeah, Ecclesiastes 8.14, I think, is another of those. There is blank which is done on the earth, that there are righteous men who, to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is... Is it futility, or is it more the fact that he's puzzled? Why is this happening this way? And so, while not a perfect solution, a word like breath has, I think, at least two dimensions to it. One is, think about winter. We're almost there. Kind of ebbs and flows. We're in kind of a weird point at the moment when it's been nice outside a little bit the last few days. But when it's really bitterly cold... What two things happen when you breathe out? Maybe not for everyone, but uh, two things. You, you see it, and what happens to your breath? You see it, and then what? It disappears. So it's short. It's, it's there, and it's gone. And maybe this is just me. But when you breathe it out, and you see it appear, do you sometimes breathe it out again just so you can see it appear again? 
No, no one else does that? Some of you do it? OK. Why? Because it's something that we're like, huh, that's kind of interesting. That's, that's puzzling. Why is it that way? And I think breath captures both those ideas. So if we had to say, what is this word, this Hebrew word? It's basically breathing out on a winter day. Life is characterized as it's there and it's gone. That fits very well with the idea of James. Life is also puzzling. It's something we look at and we say, why does it work that way? Why? I don't fully understand it. I think that captures the idea of what it is that Solomon's trying to say. It's not that it's meaningless. It has a meaning, and the meaning is pointed and rooted and connected with God. But it is short, and it is sometimes puzzling. So feel free to read through the rest of those references sometime and, 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 and think about those, because this is a word that occurs constantly throughout this book. But if we say that Solomon is conveying this idea of breath, sometimes it has more the flavor of short, sometimes it has more the flavor of puzzling, then in what ways is life like breath? And this gets into the, the title that I put in the bulletin, which is, What is the Meaning of Life? We see this as we continue in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Man's efforts, first of all, do not make his life more meaningful once he's gone. Human life is, is like a breath in these ways, in light of these realities. First of all, what we do does not make life more meaningful once we're gone. You work? To what end? What's the end result of your work? You say, I have X amount of money in my retirement account. What's the point? Not, not saying you shouldn't work. I'm not saying we don't work toward a goal. I'm not saying it can't be used for good. But is that a sufficient goal to live life for? Solomon is saying, what advantage do you have in all your work? He's going to say later, work is good. And, and, but, but there's puzzling aspects of it as well. And then in contrast to the span of the world that God has given to us, verse 4, generations come and go, but the earth remains forever. Human life is short compared to the history of the world. Now, how old is the world? We talked about a little while ago that Solomon wrote this something like 3,000 years ago. Um, conservative theologians would say the, the world is somewhere between six and 10,000 years old. We live on average 60, 80 years. Our lives are but a small fraction of the span of human history. And then we compare that to eternity, and they're like a speck. And Solomon's point is to say, if your significance is in work, to what end? If your significance is in the span of your life, it's short. And then he, he illustrates this several different ways. The earth continues these patterns without fail, and they seem to be sort of circular or cyclical. The sun rises and sets. The wind blows. Then it goes this way, and it swirls around. The rivers go to the sea, but the sea is not filled up. The rivers flowed there, and they keep flowing. 
if you do science class, I forget what grade it is, you, you go through all that, the pattern of water comes up, goes down, flows along, repeats. There's all these cycles. And it'd be really easy to say, you know, history is like that, life is like that, it's just these cycles and you're just sort of stuck on kind of like a hamster running on a wheel and, and what's the point? But Solomon is using these things to illustrate the emptiness of basing our lives on insufficient goals. I say, well, but if I could just understand it, if I could answer these key questions about life, verse 8, all things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. I think when he says tell it, he has more this idea of you're not able to explain it. We certainly try to describe what's going on in life, but if someone says, what is life all, all about? And we try to say that, answer that without reference to God. Do we really have a good explanation of all of these things? No. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. How many of you have seen something cool and you say, that's the only thing I ever need to see that's interesting in my life? No. Why does YouTube work? Because there's something different every time you look at it. And if we were satisfied by seeing new things, if we're satisfied by hearing new stories, then there would be no role of news people in our society. They wouldn't have the success that they do. And all of these things that basically bring new information to us, whether it be uh, from newspapers to the guy who in old days would have traveled through the town and said what happened the next town over. I mean, it's not just a technology thing. This is something that's been going on for ages. We want to hear something new. We want to see something new. But it doesn't satisfy us when we do that. And in reality, there's rarely anything that's truly new. And that's what I think verses 9 and 10 are saying. That which has been is what will be. That which has been done is that which will be done, so there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, we look at something like, I got some batteries in the mail today. Um, Amazon is weird. They have people show up in vans and, and drop things off on your doorstep. And I pulled them out and I looked at them. And you look at it and you're like, well, this is kind of cool. Here's this little package. It can power all these sorts of things. It can sit on the shelf for a long time and not lose its charge. That's pretty cool that someone made a battery. They've uncovered in archaeological digs certain early batteries from hundreds if not thousands of years ago. So we're like, we're pretty smart. We have whatever they are, Amazon Basics, Duracell, Energizer. This civilization came up with the idea long before we did. So every time we think, wow, we're pretty clever, we realize we're just sort of repeating in different ways things that have been done to a large extent before. And that's, I think, part of the point that Solomon is making. So if our, our goal is to make a name for ourselves through innovation, through creativity, through coming up with new things, that's not a sufficient goal either. And then if our goal is to say, you know what? If I get my name on a wall, on a, on a plaque, if I make a name for myself in some way, my life will have been worth living. Verse 11 kind of uh, chops the legs out from under that idea. There is no remembrance of earlier things, and of the later things which will occur, there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. So you want to make a name for yourself? Great. You'll be remembered for about 
in terms of overall popularity in the United States, maybe five minutes, a few years. In terms of the span of human history, a mere fraction of time. Now, you lay all those things out and it sounds, that's really discouraging. What's the goal that Solomon is going to drive at? Without giving away too much of it, the goal at the end of the book is, so how are you related to God? But all along the way, Solomon is saying, what are the things that we live for? What are the things that we value? What are the things that are confusing to us? What are the things that are puzzling to us? Let's look at them. Let's set them in their proper context. Here's me. Here's this circumstance. Here's God. Here's the things that God has said for me to do. How does all of that fit together? Wisdom says, put everything in its proper place. Recognize that life has meaning, but it's not found in me. It's found in God. And that when I pursue and exalt one thing to the exclusion of everything else, he's going to show the futility of it as we go through the book. And so, I feel like I should keep going, but this is where the passage ends. So, come back next Sunday night. Let's pray. We thank you for, Lord, for these truths in your word. I pray that as we look at your word, that you will help us to think about the truths, not just at a surface level, but just in terms of the, um, so many things in life that, that we, we look at them and we say, why? To a certain extent, you don't answer all those questions for us. But there is also a sense in which you give us a right perspective from which to look at these things. We pray that you would help us to have that as we study through Ecclesiastes together over the coming weeks, and that we would see that there is hope, and there is joy, and there is goodness, and there is beauty in a world that is broken and sinful and flawed. But rather than letting all those things overwhelm us or the joys become our idols, help us to look to you, because you are the ultimate focus of our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.